Please open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This morning we'll be looking at the last two verses in the epistle of James. We began our study in January of last year, studying through James and Psalm 119. We just finished Psalm 119 last week, and we are now going to be finishing James this week and next week. I hope and trust that it's been a a profitable study for you. You'll find the notes in this morning's bulletin, or hopefully on a link by the video if you're watching online, and on the back of the notes you'll find the text in case you don't have a Bible. I'd like to begin by reading these two verses, and then we will begin our study. James 5, 19-20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Lord God, I pray that as we look at these last two verses, we would receive them, that we would recognize the tremendous blessing, the tremendous stakes involved that we would overcome our fear of man, that we would overcome our desire for comfort and love each other enough that when we see each other go astray, we might go after them like the good shepherd who leaves the 99, that we might be open um, to our brothers and sisters coming to us, that we would care for one another in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Only two verses, and yet tremendous truth of significance for the body. Um, if you want to look at the text, it's, it's pretty straightforward. You've got a conditional sentence. Conditional sentences usually go if, and then they have a then. So in this case, my brother's if, and you have a two-part condition, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, there's the first part, and someone brings him back. So there's your condition. Someone goes astray, someone brings them back. The implied then would be then let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will, one, save his soul from death, and two, cover a multitude of sins. So that's, that's the structural breakdown of the passage. But before we dive in, let's consider how it relates to the rest of the epistle of James. This is, after all, his closing remarks. And I would suggest to you that if you turn all the way back to chapter 1, This closing exhortation shares some similarities with the opening exhortation as well. Um, In chapter 1, in verse 2, you get the first of James's many imperatives. Verse for verse, James is filled with the most commands, imperatives, out of any New Testament letter. He's, he's got much exhortation to give. And his very first exhortation is to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For, and the reason why you should do this, is you know something. Well, that's the same rationale being used here. If this happens, one of you wanders from the truth and another comes and brings him back, no. So James is, again, motivating us, justifying Arguing why we ought to do something because of something we know. It's, it's James's connection between truth and action. Here's what you know and here's how you act in relationship to it. So our first point then, the act 
of confrontation and restoration, the act of confrontation and restoration. The other connection more locally is the if anyone among you. How he begins 19, you see in verse 13, if anyone among you. Verse 14, is anyone among you? So in one sense, this final instruction completes his sort of topical various issues in the body. What do you do with somebody who's rejoicing? What do you do with someone who's sorrowing? What do you do with someone who's sick? Here, what do you do with someone who's straying? And yet, what you have here with the, with the address of my brothers is his final address of 15. This is the most frequent way James introduces a new section. We could go through the whole letter. I just gave you some of the references. But count it all joy, my brothers. Um, then you get to, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, 116. And so most regularly when James is starting a new section, he'll use my brothers. Not always, but of the 15 times he says my brothers, 10 of them he's starting sections with. Um, this is James's favorite way of address. By comparison, the Apostle Paul will use my brothers in his letters in all of Paul's letters seven times. 15 times in this one letter. And of course he means brothers and sisters. So even as we've seen James has some hard and difficult truth, he, he maintains a brotherly, intimate, and affectionate um, stance. And so he's talking to Christians. He's talking to those who bear the name of Christ. He's talking to those scattered in this version all the way back in 1.1, James, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greeting. So all you brothers... All over Asia Minor, where the church is spread, is his final instruction. And whereas up until now, most of his instruction, nearly all of his instruction, has been directly challenging and exhorting error, misconduct in the body, here, at the end of his letter, he turns his attention to the act of restoration. Now, I've titled it Confrontation and Restoration intentionally because I, I don't want to shy away from the part that we don't like about it. If I just say restoration, which I think would be fair, I was talking to Pastor Daniel about this, we tend to think of the, the, the embrace at the end of separation. And that's part of restoration. But the part that we don't like, the part that gives us butterflies in our stomachs, the part that makes us avoid doing what James is talking about is the confrontation. And I think it's a clear and necessary part of this. So I'm, I'm, let's just name it and look at it and consider it. The act of confrontation, restoration. That's what James is envisioning in his conditional. If. So, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So, a couple points to make here. The first, the wanderer is one of the brothers. Just grammatically, that's clear. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. The one who wanders is among you, and the you is the brothers. So we're dealing with professing Christians. This is an in-house issue. That's the first thing to make clear. We're dealing with professing believers. We're dealing with a household of faith. The wanderer is one of the brothers. Second, his wandering is away from the truth. Is away from the truth. And we've got to talk about what does, he, what does he mean by that? Now, this is a common New Testament expression for falling away, what we sometimes call apostasy. James has already warned us. Turn back to chapter 1. 
In verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Same word as wander. We actually get the word planet from it because the Greeks viewed the planets as wandering around the sky because of their unique orbits. So wandering and with an implication of deceived or being deceived. So it's a possibility for believers to wander. It is a possibility for believers to be deceived. James has already addressed this. I'll give you some examples of other New Testament passages. James may be building upon the language of Jesus in Matthew 18. What do you think, Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, same verb, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. I don't know if this is exactly what James is building off of, but as we've seen throughout James, he's constantly building off of Jesus' teaching. Something like this could be in his mind. Jesus taught about straying sheep and the rescue project to recover them. So the wandering is away from the truth. Away from the truth. Third, his wandering is in doctrine and or practice. Now, some wandering is doctrinal. I don't think that's what James primarily has in mind. You can go to 1 John, and you can see John say, look, if anyone denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, if anyone denies the doctrine of the humanity of Jesus, and you say he appeared to be human, or he just looked human, this, this is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a doctrinal test. James's doctrine, and he has doctrine, is always tied to action. The truth in James's view is something you do, you practice. And so wandering from the truth, I think, has far more the notion of wandering from practice in accordance with the truth. This is not maybe a way we speak of it, but this is a New Testament way of speaking of things. Let me, let me give you some examples. Just turn back to James 3, 13 and 14. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. My conduct, whether it be good or contentious, can lie against the truth. Be false to the truth. That's how James can use the truth. You, you can act in accord with, in keeping with the truth, or not in accord. It's not that James is trying to separate doctrine and action. James, I think, has the two welded together. Again and again, his reasoning is stop doing this or don't you do this. Most recently, don't grumble against each other. Why? Doctrinal reason. Because when you grumble against each other, you're judging the law and condemning the law. That's why. Don't fight and quarrel. Why? Because you're really fighting over your desires, and you're really evidencing a love of the world. So James has doctrine, but it's always applicable. It's never esoteric. So James is envisioning someone wandering from the truth. So what, how serious are we talking about here? I would say something like persistent, unrepentant, unaddressed sin. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the sins we struggle with, the sins we're aware of, the sins we're fighting. To wander from the truth, 
would be somebody who has embraced or is at least at peace with their sin, with their wrong conduct, and they're not showing any signs of either being aware of it or of addressing it. There's some sort of pattern. There's some sort of consistency with it. And I would suggest that when you say, well, what types of conduct? Well, let's start with most immediately anything James has addressed in his letter. I mean, you can look at it this way. James gives all these exhortations. And then at the end, he's saying, look, if you see people not receiving these exhortations, if you see people wandering from the truth, which is what James has been talking about, here's what you do. They'll be grumbling, they'll be boasting, showing partiality and preference. That would be not controlling your tongue. That would be robbing from the poor. That would be fighting and quarreling. And on and on through James. So, so it's, in one sense, there is a pattern, there is some persistency here in view. But don't just think of it as big sins. Be any pattern of sin that's not being dealt with, that's being embraced, that's leading someone to depart from the truth. His wandering is in doctrine and practice. Let me, let me turn over to 1 John. I'll show you how this, this can work. The New Testament idea of doing the truth. 1 John chapter 1. I think I'm only going to ask you to turn to three passages apart from this one this morning. So here's one of them. 1 John chapter 1. 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The truth is something you can do, you can practice. And if you're not being honest about your sin... You're not doing, practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's another way of speaking about a believer's relationship to the truth. Is the truth in them? Are they practicing the truth? And I think that's more of the idea of what James has in mind. I don't, to put it simply, I don't think he's fundamentally thinking about playing with false religions, even though I think that is a way to depart from the truth. Someone investigating Mormonism. I think he has far more of you, somebody who's turning a blind ear to his rebuke, to gossip and slander, and so I'm going to do it anyway. I don't care. Somebody who's going to still show favoritism. Somebody who's not going to control their tongue. Somebody who's going to fight and quarrel for what they want. And on and on. So that's the first condition. We've got one of the named brothers. And what's happened to them is they have turned astray. The the verb actually could be translated passive. They could be turned by some third party astray. Sometimes in the New Testament, that's how they'll speak of things. Being turned astray. That's how we use it it in one sixteen. Do not be deceived. But whether it started with them or something external, they have ended up in a position where they have wandered, gone astray from the truth. And I think clearly evidenced in the way they're living their lives. Okay? What's the second part of the condition? And someone brings them back. Now, there is so much tied up in that wonderful phrase. 
so much tied up. But I just want to point out two things. Two things. This one, who I'd assume is a brother, he doesn't specify the one returning him is a brother, but who else but a brother or a sister would be calling someone to return to the truth? This person has called the wanderer to repentance. And let, me, let me show you that. Go to Luke 17, where these words combine. And again, the saying of our Lord is present, which may also be another one of his sayings to which James is building off of this. Can't say with certainty, but he so consistently built his teaching on Jesus' teaching that when there's ample options, we should consider them. Whether or not he's directly piggybacking off of Luke 17 or not, what James is saying harmonizes perfectly with and, and builds upon what our Lord said. In Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns or returns to you, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So returning or turning, which is the fundamental notion of repentance, metanoia'o, is, is presupposed here. This brother has called him to repentance. Repentance has taken place. They were straying from the truth. They've returned. And that pivot from outward to inward trajectory is what we call repentance. The change of mind over sin, over one's conduct. So that's happened. We see the same pairing of words in, in uh, Peter's address in Acts chapter 3. When he speaks to Israel. Repent, therefore, and turn back or return, that your sins may be blotted out. So someone has called this wanderer to repentance, and they did it through instruction and rebuke. Instruction and rebuke. Sometimes the error is simply one of knowledge. I didn't know. I'm ignorant. Didn't know what the Bible says about a topic. That's part of the reason why James has given us instruction. He's not confident we know that when we speak evil of each other, we're actually speaking evil against the law. Maybe, maybe the reason why believers are doing that is because they aren't aware of that, so I better tell them that. But we also saw, coupled with James's instruction, is he's, he's able to call believers to repentance. Now, turn, turn back to chapter 3, where we learn some of how this is done. He's dealing with teachers. They aren't to do it in quarreling and in jealousy and disorder. Look at 3.17. This is how instruction and rebuke should be given. The wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. But also bear in mind that James's epistle itself is a demonstration of that lest we so emphasize gentle that we end up with something unrecognizable. But wisdom is open to reason. As you're approaching someone, you're not coming with a club in your hand. You're coming pleading with them. You're coming with the ability to, to port, impart wisdom, to call on someone to change their conduct. That's, that's what's happened here. James has modeled this already. Um, turn, turn to 2 Timothy. This is the last passage I'll ask you to turn to, and we'll look at it twice this morning where we see this spelled out explicitly. And, and the reason I'm highlighting this is because this is the part 
I think, in restoration that we get nervous about. I'm going to have to go talk to somebody, and I'm going to have to go either implicitly or explicitly challenge what they're thinking or how they're acting. People don't always like that. They might think I'm being harsh. And it might be that I'm being harsh. I ought not to be harsh. 2 Timothy 2. Keep your finger here because we'll look at this again a little later. 24 to 26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That, that's how the model we have in the New Testament, how we go and call erring brothers. You could also add in Jesus' teaching about making sure you don't have a log in your own eye. We're going gently. We're going with God's word, able to instruct. We're able to say, hey, this is, this is what God says, and this is what I see you're doing, and I think you're off course. I think you're off the mark. Something like that's happened. James has been doing this very thing over and over throughout his epistle as he's been teaching and exhorting us, the reader. Now he's passing that responsibility on to us, or he's envisioning someone in the body doing this to someone else. Okay? So... To summarize the condition, if from among you, from among the brothers, someone wanders from the truth and the way they're living their life and what they're believing and how they're acting, and this wandering has some sort of pattern to it, some consistency to it, they're not fighting with sin. We're not talking about the daily struggles. We're talking about either they're blind to it or they've made peace with it or they've hardened their heart to it, and somebody else goes on a rescue mission. Someone else brings them back calls them to repentance, which will necessarily involve restruction, instru- instruction and rebuke. That's what he has in view. And now we get to the imperative. And I'll remind you that in James, he's always using imperatives, and especially with the my brothers, is my brothers counted all joy. My brothers do not show partiality. What's interesting here, as we look at the results of confrontation and restoration, is the imperative is know something. You need to know something. Let him know. Which is really interesting. The the immediate application is that we need to know something. Which suggests a couple things. It suggests, first, that we must understand the stakes involved. We have seen over and over again James point out to us that we've minimized the significance of something, right? Right? You may think something as simple as saying, I'm going to go here or there next year and buy and sell. No big deal. James says it's boasting. It's evil. Whoa. James talks about what causes quarrels, what causes fights. And then he's talking about murder and war. James talks about something as simple as not bridling your tongue in the end of chapter 1. And he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Again and again, James is telling us, in essence, do you you not realize how much more significant, how much more important, how much greater these things are than you've thought thus far? What does that again here? We, We need to understand the stakes. The fact that he has to exhort us this way also suggests we're not inclined naturally to believe this. 
As, as you leave here this morning, what, what command does James have for you and for me? It's that we would be certain of and know something. With a clear implication, next point, that this knowledge is meant to motivate us to action. This knowledge is meant to motivate us to action. What, in other words, what James is assuming is if we could really grasp and really believe what's going on when someone brings back a wanderer, well, he wouldn't have to tell us what to do. We'd be busy doing it. So follow the logic, the imperative, the command. Is we, we got, he's got to know something. He's got to understand something. And James is assuming that will do the job. If we could just wrap our heads around what's really going on and the significance of it, then we'd be a body caring for itself, a body going after wanderers and bringing them back, just like the good shepherd brought us back. Okay? Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will do two things. And I think if we stop and look at them, you'll see they are, in fact, massive. These two statements are massive. If you have been used by God, and in God's providence and his blessing, right around the new year, right before the new year, a number of you were going after a brother, and praise God he returned. Let me me tell you what James says you had a hand in doing. Let me tell you what James says you accomplished. This is crazy. We'll save his soul from death. will save his soul from death. I'll talk to people sometimes. They want to know what purpose my life is. I want to do something that matters. May I suggest to you that being able to say, I helped save a soul from death, is, is pretty high in the list of significant things you could do. This is stunning. This is stunning. Now, that statement has a concealed negative that we don't like. The concealed negative is that all who do not return to the truth will perish. All who do not return to the truth will perish. Um, But that's what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. James has already said in chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, or the crown which is life. So, I think part of the reason we we have a hard time believing this is we don't like the notion of if I wander off and harden my heart and I never come back, I'll perish. There are plenty of New Testament passages to that effect. But think of it positively. If you have a hand in calling a brother or sister to return, James is saying, you need to know, you've saved a soul from death. That's just stunning. And I know you want to say, no, 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 that's what God does. And if you've got your finger still in 2 Timothy, well, yes, the Bible credits God with that as well. 2 Timothy 2, right? The Lord's servant, 24, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's my job. And God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here's another passage looking at roughly the same thing, someone correcting, instructing someone. And here, divine action power and agency is emphasized. That, that when you call on someone to return, when you try to 
call on someone to the truth, God is the one who grants repentance. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But your next blank here is this. Divine action does not negate human agency. Which is a complicated way of saying just because God does it doesn't mean you don't do it. God takes credit for things we do so that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Philippians 2, 14. I need to get to work. Why? Because it's God who's at work within you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. So who's doing the working? Is God doing the working or am I doing the working? And the answer is yes. Exactly. Or I heard the illustration, an elephant and a mouse took a walk over a rickety bridge, and when they got to the other side, the mouse looked at the elephant and said, we sure did make that thing shake. (laughs) But who's to say the mouse didn't play a part in it? Or John Piper uses the example of a lumberjack and an axe. And you can speak of the axe felling the tree in a real sense. Well, we know the axe only felled the tree because it was in the hand of the lumberjack. So I, I don't want in any way to minimize God's role in this. But yet, we have in Scripture here, in James, the bold claim that the one who calls a sinner to return from his wandering will save his soul from death. And James is saying, the imperative, the command, we've got to believe that. We've got to own that. We've got to not minimize the significance when someone wanders off. Well, it's a good thing they can't lose their salvation. You're right, they can't lose their salvation. But if they don't return, they'll perish. Because First John 2 says they departed from us to show they were not of us, for if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. James is clear. The harder passages of the Bible are generally pretty clear. They're just hard. And so James is giving us this imperative to receive, to believe this. I think implies we need divine command and instruction to really wrap our heads around this. Will save his soul from death. You couldn't be part of a mightier, more significant endeavor. I mean, this this is the same reason we do missions, right? Because the lost, how they believe on him who they've not heard, and we rightly get passionate about missions and the gospel going out to the ends of the earth. Why? Because we don't want men and women to perish. That's exactly what's going on here. We ought to have the same zeal and passion and commitment towards going after straying brothers and sisters. Not brutally, not judgmentally, lovingly, gently, but calling them back. Because the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. We can be his arms and his legs, his body in action. We'll save a soul from death. What, what also will happen? What also happens? We'll cover a multitude of sins. There's looking at it positively. So negatively, you avoid a danger. Here, cover a multitude of sins. This is a rich biblical expression. We'll look more at this next week. But for this week, let me just quote to you where it first shows up in the Bible. This notion of sin being covered. It shows up in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. A mask of David. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. To have your sin covered, to have your sin forgiven. Covering a multitude of sins is not hiding them away. It's confessing, turning from, having them dealt with, and then we're done talking about it. I love, I love telling my kids that. After they've asked for forgiveness and whatever correction has been given that needs to be given and we give a hug, we're done talking about it. It's been dealt with. It's covered. Let's move on. Notice the, the modifier here, a multitude of sins. That's interesting. So let's, let's look at the first blank here. What does sin covered mean? It, it's the result of forgiveness. It's the happy state on the other side of confession and repentance and return. Again, I'll cite to you David's example. Blessed is the one against whom, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So when James talks about covering a multitude of sins, he's not talking about hiding away as in not dealing with. He's talking about the, the putting it to rest because it's been dealt with. That's what he's talking about. It's the result of forgiveness. First Peter 4.8 uses the same expression. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. But why multitude? Why multitude? I mean, after all, a person may only be straying in one significant area. What's a multitude to do with? Well, I think because of the ripple effect, because repentance and restoration is never compartmentalized. We try to kid ourselves that our spiritual lives are compartmentalized. I'm doing well in every area except this little one. So if you really stand back and look at my whole life, it's really pretty good. Just one little area. But, but you're not compartmentalized. You're holistic. And if you're willfully compromising and at peace with sin in one area, that's going to spread all over the place. And when you deal with that one area, that new repentance and zeal will spread all over the place. And so one issue in life butts up against another issue in life, butts up against another issue in life. And what James is saying is the consequence positively, the amount of good the amount of redemption, the amount of forgiveness, the amount of change is greater than you can comprehend. It's not just the one issue that's going to be affected. Yeah, you're going after a brother or a sister for something clear you're seeing. Do not, do not think that's all that's going to be affected. If they hear you, if they return, a multitude of sin will be dealt with. That's That's, that's amazing. That we, that we can be credited rightly, along with God, but still rightly, we made that bridge shake, with saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. It will affect every area of life. Again, this is Jesus teaching, Matthew twelve thirty three. Either make the tree good or its fruit good, or make the tree bad or its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus doesn't believe... A good tree can have 10 good branches, then one bad branch. Because he understands the nature of the tree is revealed by the fruit. And we kid ourselves when we think we got it all under control except this one little area. And James is saying, look, if you call somebody back over the area you see and they, and they return, a multitude of sins will be covered. 
A multitude of sins will be covered. Which brings me to my last sort of two points in your block here at the bottom. Because practically, I think this is so important. So important. We must guard ourselves against minimizing the danger and the blessing so that we will be eager to restore. We must guard ourselves against minimizing the danger and the blessing so that we will be eager to restore. That's the clear logic of James. He doesn't tell us to go restore. He tells us the command is no. No with certainty. Because he's assuming if we could actually know this, the actions would take care of themselves. If when your son or daughter, mother or father, husband or wife, dear friend, started hardening their heart and wandering in their actions, started, stopped fighting sin and was giving into it, if you understood, oh my dear, if they don't return, their soul will perish. If this ultimately proves who they are without change, and conversely, if, 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 if they would listen to God's word and hear his rebuke, receive his pardon and forgiveness, it would affect every area of their life would be revitalized. We'd be going after that with excitement. But we're afraid of doing this because we don't like conflict, and rightly so. I think sometimes, in fact, we, we don't actually do this till we're actually fed up. We don't do it because... We care about righteousness or what God says. We do it because finally they've done it for the 27th time and it's bugging you. And then you don't go righteously. And you do go quarrelsomely. And it does go poorly. And then you tell yourself, see, that's why I don't deal with people of sin because it never works out. No, no. We, we need to go with the right attitude. The wisdom from above is pure, open to reason, gentle. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but kind able to teach, patiently enduring evil. we got to go with the right attitude, but my goodness, we have to go. We have to go. And we, we don't go because we tell ourselves little lies. Again, I've seen people, it's, not, it's usually not the person themselves, it's usually people who care about them, parents. Well, whatever my son or daughter is doing, I'm just glad to know they came to the Lord 10 years ago. And so whatever happens, they're set. That's not what James says. They're just a carnal Christian. That's not what James says. James says, soul perishing is what's at stake. Soul perishing is what's at stake when someone wanders from the truth. You take it up with James. But I submit to you that if we don't believe that, we're not going to overcome our fear of man and our love of comfort and go have difficult conversations with people. Uh, Our final point here, and then we'll sing our closing song. We will sing it, Mike. There is no greater act of love than to save a soul from death. You, You never show greater love to your brothers or sisters than when you go after them. We'll see next week. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19, is all about this. Go, go reason frankly with your brother. Don't hate them. Don't get resentful. Go talk to them. Reason frankly. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second greatest command. Love your brothers and sisters truly. And, and let me flip that around backwards. Realize 
that your brother or sister is coming to talk to you and you don't want to talk to them because they're messing with your business and they're messing with stuff in your life. They love your soul more than you do in that moment. The person who comes and corrects me when I'm going astray and people have, they're the people who love me the most, who I should count as my dearest friends. Let me read to you a couple passages. Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Notice the opposite. You see something wrong. You see someone going astray and you act like everything's fine. You're flattering them. You're not helping them. The sheep is walking off into the woods and everyone else is just acting like everything's fine. How are you doing? You're causing them to think things are better than they are. You're not loving them. Telling people what they want to hear can be loving, but it's not loving if what they need to hear is something uncomfortable. A doctor is not loving who doesn't give the bad diagnosis because he knows the patient doesn't want to hear it. You give the diagnosis while it can be treated. You You know giving the diagnosis will cause immediate dismay. But you would be furious with your doctor if you found out that you had some deadly illness that could have been treated if got in time. And he knew about it, but he, I just I didn't want to upset you. Didn't want to bother you. No. The people who speak the truth to you in love, the people who come and you say, hey, hey, brother, I, th- I th- think you've gone off the mark. Come, come back. They love you. They're carrying out the... The will of, the heart of, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Let me read one last passage here. Psalm, it's not in your notes, but you can write this down. Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I, I, I was so encouraged to see our body go into action just recently. And we'll continue to do that, as a body should, with the white blood cells going after the problems. But we'll only do that if we remember the stakes, if we remember the blessing involved, and if we stop believing half-truths that say everything's fine when it's not. Now, ultimately... Our confidence is in God's sovereign ability to keep us and hold us. Even as we may be the axe the lumberjack uses to hit the tree, it's the lumberjack ultimately who's responsible. Our closing song recognizes that great truth. The shepherd will not let any of his sheep slip through his hands, but one of the ways he stops sheep from slipping through his hands is by brothers and sisters going out and saying, come come back, come back, return. Turn, Turn from this thing and return. That's one of the ways the good shepherd keeps his sheep. Please stand as we sing our closing song.